0: We'll be looking at Hebrews chapter 11. I'll read for us in a few minutes, verses 4 through 7. Let me say some things before we look at the text. It struck me that if we're not careful, we can make assumptions about Christianity that actually inhibit our ability to live like Christians, that is like Christ. I want to share one example with you. It's so familiar that we may not even notice it. We can operate under the assumption, not be aware of it, but operate under the assumption that faith belongs to our religious life, but not to our day-to-day routine. That, we think, requires something else. Common sense, horse sense, business sense, but not faith sense. If you know what to look for, you can see signs that a person is operating under that assumption. Let me give you a couple. Here's one. It's only the big things that he or she thinks about when it comes to trusting God. Emergencies, physical or emotional crises. The person only thinks about trusting God in those big things. Here's another. He can't remember the last time he needed to trust God, except for one of those emergencies. And then there's this one. This one's classic. She divides her life up into little sections, like a grapefruit. And one of those sections, there's a whole bunch of them. There's the entertainment section. There's the work section. There's the relationship section, the marriage section. One of those sections is the religion or church section. She may even feel superior to her friends and relatives because her religion section is fuller than theirs. That's the same church fathers labeled spiritual pride. But the kind of faith our author is talking about in chapter 11 defies compartmentalization. It constantly spills over into everyday life. The three heroes of faith we look at today make that clear. There's Abel, whose faith is described in terms of worship. That's the religion section. But there's also Enoch. The book of Genesis tells us that he walked with God. And the Bible walking is a metaphor for doing everyday life. Because of faith, God was present to Enoch, not just in worship, but in daily life. Daily life became an act of worship. Then there's Noah. He worked for years and years on what seemed like a useless project and did not give up. So you see, Abel worshipped, Enoch walked, Noah worked, but Abel worshipped by faith, Enoch Walked by faith, Noah worked by faith, faith played a role in every aspect of their lives. Now, one more opening word before we dig into these verses. Real life or real faith yields results. Real faith yields results. Of course, the televangelists say that all the time. They will tell you that faith yields physical healing and financial prosperity. And I won't disagree. Sometimes it has. But those aren't the only results of faith. Abel's faith resulted in his death and the world's first act of religious persecution. Noah's faith almost certainly led to ridicule. Abraham's faith nearly cost him his son. Moses' faith made him a refugee. Verses 36 and 37 give a kind of summary statement of the consequences of faith. Verse 36, these heroes of faith faced jeers and flogging while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they were put to death by the sword, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. And those were also the results of faith. Now, if that's the case, why have faith? If I can't count on faith to make my life more comfortable and pleasant, and it may even make my life less comfortable and less pleasant, why bother with it? Let me give you three preliminary answers that will develop in more detail as we go along. We bother with faith because without it, we cannot make sense of the world. Faith helps us see things as they really are. Far from being the illogical belief in the occurrence and the improbable, as men can put it, faith gives a person the ability to understand the reality beyond the appearances. People without faith exercise an illogical belief in the trustworthiness of appearances, and they're frequently disappointed because of it. Why bother about faith if it doesn't make life more comfortable and more pleasant now? Because now is not all there is. That's one of the chief themes of this chapter. And one more reason not to bother or to bother about faith. We have no hope of pleasing God without it. Without faith, we cannot connect to God. And he longs for us to connect him. We were made for that very purpose. Now we'll see more about that as we go along. Let's read verses 4 through 7. By faith, Abel... Offered, a better, offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By the way, Abel is the son of Adam and Eve. By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings, and by faith, he still speaks, even though he's dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience, literally did not see, death He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Now, all three of the men mentioned here come from the beginning of Genesis. So by the time you get to Genesis chapter 9, all their stories have been told. The story of Noah occupies four entire chapters. But Abel's story is told in just seven verses, and Enoch's in only four verses. There's not a lot of detail in the Old Testament about Abel and Enoch, which left people feeling free to fill in the blanks. And they did. These two men were the subjects of much curiosity and a great deal of conjecture. Our author displays absolutely no interest in the conjecture. His only interest is in the faith that these men displayed. Verse 4, again, By faith Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings, and by faith, he still speaks, even though he's dead. The conjecture over Abel, I mentioned there was a lot of it, centered on three specific subjects. One, why was his offering acceptable to God when his brothers wasn't? What made his offering better? Two, how did Cain kill him? What weapon did he employ? And three, by what means was his body buried? ancient writers were fascinated by those questions and developed very detailed answers to them. Our author, who was certainly familiar with those answers, ignores them completely. When he writes that Abel's worship offering was better than Cain's, he follows the book of Genesis and doesn't say why. Now I mentioned there was a great deal of conjecture regarding the subject among ancient people, but ancient people were the only ones were not the only ones given to conjecture. I've heard many Preachers explain why Abel's offering was better. They say it was because it was an animal offering rather than a grain or produce offering. And that may be true. But it's still conjecture. The scripture says nothing about that at all. Not here or anywhere else. Um, Some say that Abel's offering is better because it was a blood offering, like the later offerings the law required and that Jesus himself gave. Again, that may be true. Sounds right. But there's not a word about it in the Bible. It simply does not tell us why Abel's offering was better, but our author does tell us how it was different. Abel offered it by faith, and that pleased God. We're not told, but we're left to imagine how Cain made his offering, but the implication is, here and elsewhere, that he did not do so by faith. Perhaps he did it out of obligation. Abel presented his offering by faith, Cain presented his by compulsion. How do you think God would feel about that? Well, think how you would feel if you gave the same gift to two different students as graduation presents. Every year, Karen and I do that. We, all our graduates get the same exact thing. What if you gave the same present to two different students for graduation? The mother of one student makes him write you a thank you note. You know that because she told you she's been after him for a month to write those notes. The other one sends you a note that is personal and expressive and heartfelt. Which would you rather get? Now, don't you think God might feel the same way? We know he does. Jesus was at the temple once with his disciples when a widow gave an offering of pocket change. Other people were giving large sums of cash. But Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. The word more in that passage in Mark is the same one translated better in this verse. God counted it as more, more pleasing, more valuable, more meaningful, because she trusted him with it and wanted to please him. That's how Abel gave. Now the question for us is, is that how we give? When we take the offering, very often someone will say something like, don't feel like you have to give, but if you're giving this morning, do it as an act of worship. Let your money be a token that represents your life, which you give to God. Some people think about how little they can give. Really, they think, how little can I put in the plate and still be okay? That's not good. A few people think about how much they can give, and that's better. But people of spiritual depth and sincere faith think about how they can give themselves. And that's best. When God speaks well of offerings, it's because of that. Just as Jesus spoke well of the widow's offering. The gifts that you treasure most are the ones by which the giver gives himself to you. And those are the gifts that God treasures as well. Such gifts always cost something. That something may not always be money, but it'll be part of us, pleasure or time or hope. If you want your offering to please God on Sunday morning, when we take the offering, always start by giving yourself to him first. Then your offering, whether it's much or just a little, will still be more, will be better, in the sense we have it here. When a person worships in that way, offering himself as well as his gifts with deep confidence in God, that is with faith, his life continues to have an influence even after he dies. By faith, our author says, Abel still speaks even though he's dead. Now, let me ask you a tough question. If you were to die today, would your life still speak or would it be mute? And if it did speak, what would it say? Would it say, eat, drink, and be merry? Would it say, I thought money was the answer to everything? Or would your life say, like Abel's, God is worthy of your very best? Abel worshiped by faith, Enoch walked by faith. Now, if there was speculation about Abel, and there was, there's even more about Enoch. His life takes up only four verses in Genesis, and yet entire books were written about or purportedly by him. The Jewish people were captivated with Enoch. Some said that he had been a terrible sinner who repented and so became an example to all the rest of us. Others claim that God only took Enoch because he would have fallen back into a life of debauchery had he not, that it was an act of mercy to prevent him from going back into his sin. A kind of mythology arose around Enoch. People said that God had given to him all kinds of knowledge, especially concerning astrology. Others made up stories in which Enoch works together with the prophet Elijah to confront and kill the Antichrist. All kinds of stories about Enoch, and again our author ignores them all. He relies, if you read the book of Hebrews, which has more quotations from the Old Testament than any other book in the New Testament, he relies solely on the Bible for his information. He writes, By faith Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. Taken from this life is, in the NIV is rather a loose translation. Of that part of verse 5 the original is more like by faith Enoch was removed not to see death the word removed is sometimes translated translated for example in the King James Version it has the idea of removing something from one place or sphere to another when we translate a sentence say from Spanish to English we remove the concepts from the sphere of Spanish, make the necessary changes, and place them into the sphere of English. Well, Enoch was translated from earth to heaven. The scripture doesn't spell that out, but I think that's the idea. He was removed from the sphere of earth, the necessary changes were made to express Enoch in heaven. Think of it as translating a story from a language with a small vocabulary, like Sranan and Togo has about 3,000 words, in their whole language into a language with a large vocabulary, like English, that has something like 250,000 words. Or better yet, think of it as translating from cheap music for piano to a full musical score for orchestra. Now, a piano is a remarkable instrument. It's capable of bringing out all kinds of nuanced tones and meanings, but it has its limits. The piano has 88 keys. It's incapable of the growling notes of a trombone, or the fluid tones of a clarinet, or the soaring tones of the violin. It's the perfect instrument to play Beethoven's Piano Sonata Number 8, one of my favorites, but not his Symphony Number 9. There's too much in the symphony to express in a piano. Now, if a person was music, he'd be a symphony, not a sonata. God wrote so much into you. The composition of your life is so rich and complex that earthly life is not capable of fully expressing who you are. Life here is like a Bach concerto that's been transcribed for guitar. We try to capture the music of 20 instruments of oboes and flutes and trumpets and violins and violas and cellos and bass violas so that it can be played by one instrument and the transcription is still beautiful but it's different it's smaller it's less robust than what it was intended to be you need to be translated before you can be fully expressed when enoch was translated when he was removed from earth to god's nearer presence He was translated for the first time into a form that could actually begin to express all the riches and beauty that God wrote into him. Before he was taken, translated, transposed, he was commended as one who pleased God. For our author, that can only mean one thing. Enoch was a man of faith. He trusted God. The conclusion is obvious because verse 6, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Now, let your mind dwell on that for a moment. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. I can walk away from a burgeoning career in business, take a vow of poverty, and enter the ministry, but that's not going to please God if I don't have faith. I can give a large part of my estate to the church. Maybe it's millions of dollars. But without faith, God will say, so what? Without faith, God will not be pleased if I volunteer at church, work at the food pantry, give to the poor, battle injustice, speak against immorality, pray, read the Bible. See, it's not difficult to please God without faith. It's impossible. Why does God care so much about faith? If we do the right thing, shouldn't he just be happy about that? We'll look at it from another angle. Should a teacher be happy because his student gets the right answers on the quiz but gets them by pure luck? Should a parent be happy because her child cleans his room but does so with a heart full of rage and rebellion? Should a wife be happy because her husband takes her out to dinner but only to soften her up before telling her about his fishing trip with the guys? See, all the right things are done. God cares so much about faith because it's faith that connects a person to him. Faith is the means by which humans are linked to God. Confident trust in him opens the door to all the things we were made for. Love and joy and peace and purpose. Faith unlocks the door to humanity's future. To our personal futures. Faith is, remember Enoch, the translation key. Without it, God can't translate our lives into their richest, most glorious expression. We think God should be pleased with us if we just do the things he wants done. But God doesn't need us to get things done. Angels could do the job better. Monkeys could make it more fun. God can make stones sing to his glory and transform rocks into the children of Abraham. He doesn't need us to get things done. He doesn't need us at all. But he wants us. And since faith is necessary for us to connect to him, he won't be pleased unless we have it. By faith Abel worshipped. Enoch walked. And Noah We don't really have time to look at Noah today. Worked. By faith, Abel left a legacy to this day. His life speaks even after he died. Faith saved Enoch from death. He didn't even see death. And faith does the same for us. Jesus told his hearers, If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now, believers in Jesus still have heart attacks. They get cancer. They're subject to old age. The day comes when the believer takes his or her last breath. It will come for you and for me, unless the Lord returns first. And then comes the translation from this life to the next, from our little language to God's big one. Pain simply disappears. The cloudy mind clears. A figure rises out of the mists, and the believer sees not death, but the deathless one, the defeater of death, Jesus Christ in his face beams with joy. The hope we could never even find words to express because we had not yet been translated into our proper language becomes reality all that was potential in us becomes actual, and the invisible becomes visible. And when we've been translated into our proper language, things finally make sense to us, really make sense for the first time. It'll be like waking up from a dream. Our author says there are two components to this kind of faith. Believing that God is, or that he exists as the NIV has it, and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. When our author writes about believing that God exists, he's not thinking of believing in God's existence in the abstract, like we believe in the existence of a mixture of paraffins, naphthenes, and olefins. That is, we believe in gasoline. Rather, he's thinking of believing the way we believe there's a gas station at the next exit, when we're running on empty. Where the other component that he rewards those who seek him, remember the two components, that God exists and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, that was King James English. If The default is still King James English from a long time ago, so sometimes when I'm just quoting, that's how it'll come out. Where that other component that he rewards those who earnestly seek him is missing, you will find people who say they believe in God but whose lives are not any different from those who say they don't believe in God. From atheists. They don't adjust their life around the fact that God exists. They don't come to him. They don't seek him for all intents and purposes. They function like atheists. Even though they sincerely claim to believe in God, a large percentage of Americans fit into this group. But theirs is not faith in the full sense Of the biblical word. Now you may fit into that group. And wish that you didn't. If that's the case. Is there anything you can do about it? There is. See just wishing you weren't in that group. Is a sign that God is already at work in your life. So let me make a suggestion. Dare to send out a prayer probe. Today. Say, God, if you hear me, if you're there, will you show me what to do next? Just something that simple. And then see what happens. If you'll pray that prayer, people sent by God will come into your life. Thoughts will come to your mind that are not natural to you. Thoughts like, you know, I should, I should read the Bible. I should try that. Or I ought to go to church. Or maybe I should listen to this Christian radio station for a change. All kinds of things will begin to happen that are an answer to that prayer. And when they do, dare to go further. To trust God to respond. To be the one who rewards those who earnestly seek him. Where do you start that search? You start it with Jesus. Where does the search end? It ends with Jesus. He's the alpha, the start, the omega, the end, and everything you need along the way. He is the way. Let's pray to him now. I ask you, Lord, by the time we wrap up this chapter, just in the next few weeks, that we will be people characterized by faith, that our confidence in you will be the biggest thing about us. People who are connected to you, not just when we worship, but when we walk and when we work and when we wait. I ask you to do this for the sake of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Dan's going to come and lead us in a song. Let's stand together. And if you're helping with communion this morning, will you come up as we sing?